0: Can't believe it's already hour two on the 10th of July 2023. I'm Carmen Laverge This is Mornings with Carmen. I have a whole week's worth of conversations stored up to have with you. So I don't know. We need about eight hours together today. We probably don't have that. So <clears throat> I will talk as fast as possible. So grab a cup of coffee. Let's get read in on the headlines of the day. Let's bring the mind of Christ to bear. Let's pray for the world in which we live and thank God that this is our opportunity to live um, in these days as his agents of grace and ambassadors of his kingdom purposes. That's who we are. That's what we're uh, that's what we're about. We're seeking to advance the gospel always and in all ways. And we get together every morning so that we can be more fully equipped to do that. So uh, let's see. International news. Um, it's it's really Wow. Ukraine, we are now 500 days, actually a little 500 plus days into the war in Ukraine. A couple of developments over the weekend. Five Ukrainian commanders. You will remember the Azov Battalion. That was the unit that became really the symbol of Ukraine's military defiance. There was this two-month siege of um, the nuclear power plant in Mariupol. Um, And uh, that was back in May of 2022. And these five commanders were still there when um, when the Azovstal plant was finally taken over by um, Russian forces. And so they were um, they became prisoners of war. And there was then this negotiation during which many Ukrainian prisoners of war were transferred to Turkey um and Ukraine actually, um, in exchange, released a number of Russian prisoners of war back into Russian custody. Well, five of those Ukrainian commanders, um, Turkey released them on Sunday. They were freed from custody in Turkey. And um, it's it's viewed internationally as, you know, a part of the NATO summit that uh, begins in Lithuania today or tomorrow. Um, and so... You know, we all know that Ukraine has this ambition to join NATO. Um, that is certainly at the top of uh, of the agenda for this meeting of NATO. Also have no expectation that Ukraine is going to be um, welcomed into NATO until after the end of hostilities between Ukraine and Russia. So that's going on. Um, the other thing to of note that happened in relationship to the United States support of Ukraine in the ongoing war with Russia um, is the decision by President Biden to provide Ukraine with cluster munitions. Now, that's uh, that's a first time. Um, These are controversial weapons. Um, Many countries around the world outlaw the use of cluster munitions. Two of the countries that do not outlaw them um, are the United States and Ukraine. And so... It is argued that Ukraine needs these, needs this kind of ammunition, in it's counteroffensive against um, the Russian invaders. Um, It's also argued that there are lots of moral reasons not to supply this kind of weaponry. So just know that there are moral questions before us as a people um, in the ongoing conversation about what kinds of weapons to supply to others. And, you know, frankly, what kinds of weapons we ought to be using ourselves. Uh, on that note, Oppenheim, the Oppenheimer movie is going to release on July the 21st. And I'm going to recommend that we, we consider that conversation, like, right, the weapons of war, when we use, what kinds of weapons we develop, when we use the weapons that we develop, um, and what it means for generations that we make those kinds of decisions and how those decisions are made. So... That's a good ongoing conversation this summer. I know, heavy summer stuff. Um, back here at home in real time, I uh, want to be calling us to, uh, to, to be praying for families across the United States of America who already this year have lost a husband, a son, a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, a child to gun violence. More than 12,000 people Twelve thousand six hundred and six people, to be exact, um, have taken their own life this year with a gun in the United States of america that's twelve thousand six hundred and six families and twelve thousand six hundred and six groups of friends and more than twenty two thousand actually twenty two thousand five hundred and forty two as of midnight last night um, people who have died in the United States of America you know at the wrong end of a gun and I bring this up because in the headlines, you know, over the weekend and today, you know, we are noting that the individual who killed 23 people at an El Paso Walmart, one of the deadliest uh, targeted attacks of Latinos in modern U.S. history, that individual has been sentenced to 90 consecutive life terms by a federal judge. Um, I mean, a life sentence is a life sentence. And you can't actually serve consecutive life sentences like it's it's one thing to say the penalty this person is under is 90 consecutive life sentences. But a life sentence is a life sentence. And it does. Um, I do think this should remind us of the value of a human life. Um, and let's not take it for granted today. And if you know someone who has been affected by gun violence, I want you to lift them up by name. Um. And I want us to, you know, consider we have a deadly serious problem and we ought to be praying for each other today and considering the families of those whose grief is deep and whose questions persist and um, the challenges that we face as a nation. And to that number of 12,606 suicide gun deaths in the United States of America already this year, let me say this. Um, First of all, don't do it your life is valuable. It's precious. It's a gift. And if you're having thoughts, um, otherwise the number is really simple. It's just nine, eight, eight. You can text or call it from any, any phone anywhere. nine, eight, eight. It's a, uh, it's an opportunity for you to talk directly with somebody right now in your own community, um, this morning about mental health challenges that you might be facing. Um, so uh, you are loved, you are beloved. Um, your life matters. Um, and if if something is leading you to think otherwise about that, we want you to um we want you to know that you're loved and that your life matters and that you count. So you could call 988 or text 988 from any phone and get some help. Um Elizabeth Newman is going to join us next. She is a former Department of Homeland Security Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and uh, and we're going to talk about terrorism in the United States. Oh. Elizabeth Newman is joining us. She is a security analyst. She works with the Moonshot Group. She's a former Department of Homeland Security Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism. Elizabeth, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Carmen. Good morning. So I was reading that in Los Angeles, three crosses were burned at a church. Um, And I'll just confess that, I mean, I'm reading the article and I'm thinking to myself, this is 2023. Like, it's hard for me to believe it's actually happening in America today. So can you talk a little bit about what motivates people in the U.S. to do things like this to other people in the U.S. Um, You know, you you have a perspective on this that's unique as a former member of the Homeland Security counterterrorism team.
1: Yeah, actually, it was on my watch when I was at DHS this latest tour that we started to see increases in hate crimes pretty dramatically. Um, Last year alone in California, where this incident took place, there was a 20 percent increase over the previous year, which had also been a high watermark. Um, and it, uh, it was, it includes like a 27% increase in hate crimes against blacks, a 43% increase in hate crimes against Asians. Um, and that's just the state of California. The f- The federal statistics, they actually, um, the FBI just went through a massive change in how they do their statistics. So our numbers are not as good right now um, on the national page but every independent group that i follow that that uh, is a think tank that's working on these issues um has suggested that we're anywhere between um uh that 2022 and 2021 were high watermarks um if you're looking at hate crimes against the jewish community it's uh the highest rate that they have tracked since the 1960s i mean it's it's kind of nuts like how how many more hate crimes and we're not, this isn't speech, right? Like hate crimes has a definition. These are things that are prosecutable. It's vandalism. It's, um, intimidation threats. It's actual physical harm against people. Um, so this is, this is very serious and it, it creates a a hostile environment for anybody, that is the, on the receiving end of those hate crimes. Um, and for certain communities in our country, uh, it, 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 they might be having a similar reaction to you, Carmen. Like, I thought we were past this. Why is this mm-hmm. happening again? I heard my grandparents talk about this, but you know it's not supposed to be happening to my child or to my family. Um, and it is. And so there, there's something that we as the church need to be having a, a frank conversation about. Um, and, and this is evil. Right? This is the definition of evil when we're, um, you know, people are getting targeted because of the color of their skin um, or any other, um, whether it's your political philosophy or your sexual orientation. It doesn't matter. We're all made in the image of God and we're all um, should be valued um, and given the dignity and worth of being that um, image bearer. And, um, we, the church should be standing up very strongly against this, um, and pushing back against that darkness that seems to be creeping in over our country.
0: When we talk about things that are, um, that are creeping in and then things that we're just letting in, um, let's take a brief break, Elizabeth. When we come back, I want to ask you, it's a bit of a mom question. It's also a, uh, national security question. It's a social media question. So, um, Threads launched on Thursday. Uh, Meta's the parent company. For those of you listening, you're not familiar with Threads. It's Facebook or Meta or Instagram's competitor to Twitter. Um, But in addition to Threads, Facebook, Meta, Instagram, there's YouTube, TikTok, WhatsApp, I don't know, ones I don't even know, WeChat, Reddit, Twitch, Telegram, Discord, Mastodon. I mean, there's dozens of social media providers and apps How much interaction should U.S. federal agencies have with these social media companies? We're going to have that conversation with Elizabeth Newman next. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Elizabeth Newman is with us. She's a security analyst. Um, she's also a mom. She's on social media. We're going to talk about how much interaction U.S. federal agencies should have with social media companies. So, Elizabeth, this actually conversation grows out of a ruling by a federal judge barring several federal departments and agencies um, from interacting in particular ways with some social media companies. Now, uh, it doesn't address all agents or agencies, and it doesn't address all interactions, but there's a there's a conversation here about the government's interest in and ability to fight disinformation online. And that's a real question.
1: It is. And, you know, this is one of those issue, issue areas that really requires nuance. Um, I, I when this ruling broke and it, I think it came out on July 4th. So it was kind of an uh, interesting um, Independence Day <laughs> ruling by the judge out of Louisiana and. Um, it raised my eyebrow because it's the kind of thing that honestly, the the debate over where the executive branch should be in in relation to the social media companies, this really is a job for Congress. Um, And Congress has not been addressing this issue for over a decade. Um, The reality is we have threat actors, uh, terrorists, cartels, um, organized crime, uh, you name it, who just like the rest of us, are using social media for ill purposes. Um, And it is important as the, whether it's a state government entity, a local government entity, or the federal government entity who has law enforcement responsibilities to be able to work with social media companies to be able to um, identify where those crimes are happening and to take them down. Um, For example, a lot of human trafficking uh, occurs through the internet through social media companies. Um, so and we've actually become because so much of it is on social media, uh, we've actually may arguably have developed an advantage in being able to detect um, where child sex trafficking and trafficking might be happening and being able to disrupt um, human trafficking rings because of partnerships with the social media companies. So there's a lot of good that happens when lawfully. Meaning under existing authorities, uh, you have the entity with police powers at the federal level would be the FBI or um, perhaps the ATF, other law enforcement agencies, when they uh, work with social media companies through um and most of the time by the way it's they they get warrants right like they go through the normal justice process to be able to to work with social media companies to identify people that are doing criminal behavior and and arresting them and prosecuting them the issue here is a little different it's it's not explicitly about criminal behavior it has more to do with um if we see criminal actors including by the way foreign nation states, that's what really is at the crux of the last 10 years. We had Russia intentionally seeding our social media at platforms, Facebook being one of the most prominent, um, with bad information, false information, you know, just out and out lies. And because it was coming from a foreign state actor, the federal government is best positioned to be able to say, hey. That's actually not a real person. That's uh, uh, coming from a Russian troll farm. And they would pass that information to a social media company. The social media company could then decide if that post violates their terms of service. And they would, at their own discretion, decide whether they want to take that information down. Um, You could look at the 2016 and the 2020 election and argue that in many cases, if the goal was to prevent the spread of information that was coming from foreign uh, outside foreign influences um, that the social media companies didn't do that great of a job. It's not like they um, were so over overreactive that they took down a lot of Americans, Americans speech. Um, that said in that process, we also had COVID happen. We have, we are extremely polarized as a, as a country there was a big shift from 2016 to 2020, whereas um, in 2016, most of the disinformation was coming from uh, outside the United States, like Russia. Um, by 2020, the disinformation was coming from inside the United States, but would get amplified by the foreign operatives. And by 2020, we had China participating, uh, North Korea, Iran, like everybody was getting in the game. So uh, it might not have started overseas, but they would take something that somebody posted somewhere in the United States and then amplify it and it would get legs in a way that it wouldn't have had otherwise. So there, there is a definite um, U.S. government interest in being able to understand how our foreign adversaries are taking advantage and manipulating the American people. At the same time, what the what's happening in the court here is a concern that you have executive branch officials deciding what truth is which is actually a whole other really interesting conversation carmen like we are now a post-truth society most people would say um and it then gets really kind of difficult for and, and i would suggest as a conservative maybe not the government's job at all to decide what Mm -hmm. truth is and and so maybe there are different ways that we can start to moderate um this issue of uh foreign influence and and how do we know what we're seeing online if it's true or not um you know it it really probably requires solutions outside of the government domain um and and that's what you are seeing playing out in the courts right now uh, is is this uh tension of you know, I would say a legitimate uh, government purpose of trying to push back against foreign adversaries. Um, and yet we have this beautiful thing called the First Amendment. And, and perhaps there are cases where the executive branch officials stepped over the line and were influencing, maybe they weren't, it sounds like they weren't necessarily directing, but they were influencing social media companies to take down speech that perhaps should have been protected by the First
0: Amendment. Okay, in a totally different um, but related conversation, Tim Ballard, any chance you know or ran across him when you were in the Department of Homeland Security?
1: No, it
0: was Tim Ballard. Okay, so you, okay, well, so I'll just, uh, you should see Sound of Freedom, which is a movie based on, I don't know how loosely it's based on his life, I mean, but it's his his life after he left the Department of Homeland Security and he and a bunch of other guys then um, staged up this Operation Underground Railroad where they actually target and then go in and liberate um, people, particularly children, who are being sex trafficked around the world. And so I just thought that your mention of the use of social media and the dark web for human trafficking, child sex trafficking, and anyway, and people have been texting in this morning about this movie. And I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask because who knows like you could have been like, oh yeah, his desk <laughs> was next to mine. So there you go.
1: No, right, but hey, um, man, those people are amazing. And I'm so thankful right? for the work that they do.
0: Yeah, yeah, t- 100%. All right, Elizabeth, we will catch up with you again. Thank you as always for your time. Blessings on you and your family. I know you guys have recently moved. That's no small thing. Ugh. So I no, know. Blessings. Blessings <laughs> Thanks, on Carmen. the boxes. Yeah, we love you. All right. That's Elizabeth Newman. She's sister in Christ. She's a security analyst. She's a smarty pants. We like her a lot. Uh, let's uh, let's take a break for Breakpoint with John Stone Street. All right, a really good observation um, from Mary on the text line this morning. Remember, you can text me eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Mary says, um, Hey, it gets really confusing when people say truth is relative, like, right. We live in a post-truth culture, but then they say, you know, well, this is the truth. You know, here's the truth. This is what the truth is. So yes. Um, that's, um, that's actually the truth of the matter. That's actually well said. There is truth. I would put a capital T there. Truth is one of three transcendental virtues of reality. God, um, God is goodness, beauty, and truth. God creates goodness, beauty, and truth. You can judge things according to these transcendental realities. Is it good? Is it beautiful? Is it true? In terms of its alignment with the way God created and ordered life pre-fall, before the fall, goodness, beauty, and truth. They're called the transcendental virtues. And there are three of them. And... We live in a day and a time when truth, small t, is considered relative, personable, or personal, malleable, changeable, subject to change, and it's actively suppressed by many people in many ways. You could read Romans chapter 1 to understand how God views the suppression of the truth and how God views people who actively suppress the truth. I acknowledge that it's confusing, but the truth, capital T— can be known. The truth, capital T, can be known because by his grace, he has revealed himself. He has revealed his character. He has revealed his ways. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And anytime you're confused about the truth or the truth of the matter or how somebody is trying to tell you the truth and you know it's not the truth, I want you to take a deep breath. And remember, truth, capital T, is a person. You can know him because by God's grace, he has revealed himself, his character and his ways. You can know the truth and you can live as a person who is free, even in the midst of a culture that distorts, suppresses, and even denies the truth of that matter. We're going to talk next amongst ourselves here, just you and me, um, about culture. So I'm going to ask this question. What is culture? That is a question that Vice President Kamala Harris was asked publicly. Um, And as I watched the video, I knew she was in troubled waters because she was asked the question and then she looked up into the lights over her head as if she were searching for an answer. And so when you've got a mic in your hand and you are standing on a very big stage and eyes are on you, um, and you start down a path to an answer that reveals that you haven't thought much about what you're thinking about, yeah, you end up in a, you, you could just end up anywhere. And she kind of ended up anywhere. So I want to ask you that same question, and I want to give you a minute to think about it. When we come back, we're going to talk about what is culture, and what's your read on the culture today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right. Good morning again. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about culture. Um, what is culture? Someone to ask you that question today, or you use the term culture. Like I like to do this in my conversation. Somebody drops a term, right? And they, it's a it's a term that could be defined in many different ways, and they could be Um, trying to say lots of different things in their comment or in their commentary. And so I'll circle back around and I'll say, okay, so you've said a lot there and you've used the term culture several times. So help me understand what you mean when you use the term culture. And I think if we're gonna ask those kinds of questions, we ought to be prepared to answer those kinds of questions. And so if someone were to ask me, well, Carmen, you you use the term culture a lot, Um, what do you mean when you use that term? And so culture is a way that we define a group of people. Um, We might be talking about urban culture. We might be talking about rural culture. We might be talking about American culture. You say, well, that's not specific enough. All right. So um, if I said that, if I said island culture, what would come to mind? What sort of language or norms or traditions or music or food or practices? Like if I said island culture, what would come to mind? Or teen culture? What's the teen or the adolescent culture today? Um, Maybe you grew up in a time when you could identify like punk culture or goth culture. You can think of, maybe there's a beach culture that you think of. So culture is this constellation of Language, values, norms, traditions, customs, food, um, beliefs, conventions that lead people to identify with one another. And then that group constitutes a particular culture. And so culture is the set of parameters that make a people a, a, a people, make we the people we the people as distinct from other groups of people. You're part of town your neighborhood might have a culture. Your city has a culture. Your state, certainly your country. You might be in a club that has a culture. Your church has a culture. Your family has a culture. And sometimes when you um, hear the term culture used today, particularly among Christians, it's used in a pejorative sense, as if, you know, the culture is bad. Well, Now I want to I want I want you to sort of like go back to biology class um, or biology lab. And we think about like what what's being cultured in that dish. So think of like a Petri dish. That's a culture. (laughs) What's being what's growing in the Petri dish of your life, your family, your neighborhood, your club, your community, your church? Your city, your state, your nation, you're a part of that culture. You are in it. You are in the Petri dish. You can't escape it. You cannot judge the culture as if you live outside of it. It's the water you're swimming into. So when I hear people talk about culture writ large, I sometimes challenge them to like, think about a metaphor. What comes to mind first? Like, I'm just going to give you some options here. When I say the word culture, do you think of something positive or negative? Do you think of something good, something bad, something positive, something possible? And then to stimulate that conversation, um, I might offer, well, do you, think, do you think that we currently live in a culture of life or in a culture of death? Like give, them, give people some conversational um, stakes in the ground you know, how is it that we live in a culture of freedom? Well, how is it that we live in a culture where freedom is suppressed? How do we live in a, you know, describe to me um, spaces and places where you feel like we live in a culture of opportunity and then ways that you feel like we live in a, in a culture of oppression, right? So those are, those are all ways to address the conversation related to culture. Um, And so, we can then talk about like what you're trying to do in the culture or how you're trying to engage with the culture. And so for this, I offer up a couple of metaphors and we'll dig a little more deeply into this in just a moment. But do you think of culture as a war zone? And if so, are you engaged in a culture war? That is one image that you might have of culture. Another image of culture might be, um Of a river, I want you to think of a river for just a moment, and I want you to think about culture as a river and there are those who view culture as a river and they think that they're just being carried along by it, and they can't do anything about it i view i I talk about that as the lazy river when people are like, "Well, you know the culture's just moving along, and i really I can't do anything about it like it's it's happening I don't have any control over it i'm like that's that's like a lazy river you're like sitting in your inner tube." floating down the lazy river of culture and and you're just letting it carry it carry you where it will i mean that's just laziness so others who you know would embrace the river image of culture recognize that it must be navigated that we need to be navigating it with others that we got to have help to um see what's beneath the surface and around the next bend and um Survive the rapids and and the rocks. We got to we got to rely on each other. We're in this together. Culture is a river to be navigated. Then there are those who have a more like engineering approach to the conversation that culture is a river and they recognize that it, it can and should be channeled, even rerouted, but that that happens over generations of time in order for a river to be redirected, that it would cut a new course for the future, a future filled with hope. You have to work really hard and you got to move a lot of rocks and you got to work over the course of time, even over generations, that you reroute the cultural river. So those are some images that we might talk about. I want to spend a little time talking about a third image or metaphor for culture, and that is um, a garden. There are lots of dominant metaphors for culture. I mean, you could think of it as a melting pot, a war zone, a stage, um, a cycle, a house, a river. Um, And several of those could be supported through Scripture. But the primary metaphor that God uses for culture throughout the Bible from beginning to end is that of a garden. So what is growing in your culture garden and how are you a culture gardener? We're going to talk about that next here on Mornings with Carmen. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Culture. Maybe we could have this be Culture Gardening 101. Um, when you think about culture... Do you think about a war zone? Do you think about a river? Do you think about a melting pot? Do you think about a garden? How would it change your view of God, yourself, and others, your purpose in the world, if you were primarily operating out of a metaphor for life and culture um, of a garden? Your worldview influences how you engage and relate to everyone and everything, the culture of which you are a part. So if you see the wor- world and everyone in it as a cosmic and current battle, which I'm not, I'm not denying the reality of the cosmic and current battle. We talked about that with Dave Buring at the opening of the first hour. Um, but if you think about culture primarily as a war zone and yourself primarily as a culture warrior, that is going to set you, I mean, very, very naturally at opposition every single day to other people. And people are not who we're battling against here. So, and again, you hear me every day talk about we are ambassadors of a foreign king and a foreign kingdom. Absolutely. Um, But even in war, you have to eat. Even in war, you have to eat, which means that somebody has to tend the garden. Somebody has to produce the harvest of righteousness. So I want to talk for a moment about the need for God's people to Till the soil of cultural conversation and plant and tend and cultivate the garden of every culture in every generation, because God deserves a harvest of righteousness no matter no matter what the season we find ourselves living in, no matter what the field um, how fallow it is that lies before us. so from Genesis to Revelation, we see God placing people in the garden of culture to tend and care and sow and reap from Eden. To the Psalms, to the prophets, to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven, to the visions that John has um, in the book of Revelation. From beginning to end, Scripture bears witness to the metaphor of culture as a garden. Um, I mean, think about the way that the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, some, some plant, others tend, God gives the growth, right? That's a culture metaphor. And there are some seasons that culture produces a harvest of righteousness, like we can point to um, seasons of revival, right? But let me tell you that in every season, in every season, God expects his people to produce good fruit, to sow peace, to care, and to tend the field where he has set us to labor. In every generation, in every, um, in every season, the fields are ripe for the harvest, um, but the laborers are few. So as Christians, we receive this great commission from Jesus in Matthew 28. But the first commission, which God actually gives to humanity, um, each of us and all of us, is found in Genesis chapter one. So I want you to connect the great commission to the first commission, because the first commission is the command to rule over the earth with God's delegated authority as stewards of creation to tend the garden where he has planted us, to serve as his image bearers under his authority. Um, this mandate from God is, is at issue, um, and it's what he brings up in the second command in Scripture, which is in chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, to serve and to keep the earth. That's our role. That's our responsibility in the Garden of Eden. And I would argue that is our role in the garden of the world today. This is the field where God has chosen to set us. This is the generation of our opportunity. Jesus tells lots of parables about gardening. He likens God to the gardener. And as his image bearers um, and his stewards, we cultivate the garden of our particular culture in the spirit of the living God. Cultivation of culture today is our responsibility it's our opportunity it is our worthy worshipful fruitful work we need to remove rocks 2nd Corinthians 10:5 um we got to prepare and enrich the soil Matthew 13 Mark 4 Luke 8 we got to plant the seed we got to sow the seed of God's word even as we sow peace as James in- encourages us. We water, we weed, we tend, we pray. We recognize that God alone gives the growth. First Corinthians chapter three. We grapple with the reality that we reap what we sow. Galatians chapter six. We repent of our desire to pull up all the weeds and see, yeah, like see culture as bad. God's told us he's got that handled. Matthew 13. God has this clear expectation that we would, the gardens ourselves, that we as people would be good soil, that we would abide in the vine, that we would produce good fruit in every season. He also expects us to be gardeners in the culture where he sends us as his ambassadors amidst the kingdoms of this world. And some of those I recognize are desert climates, fallow ground. There are swamps out there. But in them all, God expects us to be faithful and fruitful, to tend the place, the field, the vocation, the family, the community where God has planted us. And you might say, I don't like the harvest of unrighteousness that I see in the culture around me. Well, this is the garden where God has sent you to labor. There is work in gardening in order that the culture of which we are a part might produce a harvest of righteousness to God in the future. Galatians 5, Philippians 1, James 3:18. And my friend, if the crop this season fails, then it's our job to preserve the heirloom seeds that they might be planted anew in a season yet to come. I want you to imagine yourself as God's culture gardener today. You got to evaluate the climate of your particular cultural zone, your field of study, your field of work, the particular zone where you got to discern the times for planting and what to plant and when. I want to encourage you to consider for a moment the rhythms of your own cultivation. What season just passed? What season are you in right now? What season is on the horizon? And how are you preparing now? for a harvest of righteousness to the Lord our God. Because that's the cultural soil we're called to till today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, friends, I only got a minute to fill you in on this, but this is a mark your calendar item. So um, I know you hadn't hadn't read in on what the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks has forecast, but let me tell you, it's kind of fun. So the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska, because, you know, I read widely on your behalf, has forecast auroral activity, which you might have to look up unless you think of the auroral borealis, which yes, that's what this is about. There is going to be auroral activity this week, specifically on Thursday, but also possibly on Wednesday. So I wanted to read you in now so you could mark your calendar and you could plan now. This is is definitely worth getting up for, staying up for. All right, so 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., I know, I know. It doesn't matter what your local time is. That is the forecast. Here are the places. Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, New, New York, New Hampshire, Vermont, Indiana, Maine, and Maryland. And let me just tell you, if you live in any of those places or anywhere across Canada, by the way, there is an 11-year solar cycle. Is going, it's not going to peak till next year, but this one's going to be pretty good. Pretty good. You're going to get to see the Northern Lights between 10 a.m. Or 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., the Northern Lights. You could read in on Ezekiel 1-4 if you want to see what the Bible has to say about it. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith,